All right, turn with me over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The title of the message today is Grace Inspired Ministry. Grace Inspired Ministry. Subtitle Defining Grace Covenant Church. Defining Grace Covenant Church. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 11. Paul is writing. He's writing to the church at Corinth. And the apostle says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, Then he appeared to James and to the, all the apostles, and last to me, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of all the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Lord, help us as we study your word. Three things in this passage upon which I want to concentrate. One is our priority. Two is our identity. And three is our labor. Priority, identity, and labor. Paul is working very, very hard to make sure the church at Corinth understands the most important things related to their redemptive experience on the earth. And this is a man who has written now 14 chapters. I mean, he didn't write in chapters. He just wrote. But that's a long letter. I mean, if you get an email that's this long, it just makes you tired reading the first paragraph, doesn't it? You're like, I've got to read all that? Ah! There was a lot to say, though. And none of it was superfluous. All of it was important. It was foundational to progress for these people. He was dealing with issues in the church. He was dealing with, with theological things that they needed to construct in order to make themselves more proper in their position toward God. He was doing everything he possibly could because he wasn't there, and he cared about these people deeply. But as he's beginning to end his letter, he says, I want you to know that I thought it was really important to first present to you the things of most importance, not just everything that I've said, but that Christ died that he was buried, and that he rose. Now, for we who are Christians, it seems that's kindergarten stuff. But please understand that the depth of the centrality of Christ's sacrifice for us has no bottom. Amen. You can keep dropping the plum, and it doesn't touch bottom. Even though it sounds simple, it is profound. That a man actually can be the substitutionary benefit for you, so you didn't have to take, take your whooping? That the consequences of your own misdeeds could be borne by somebody else? Wow. And the depth of that, that it actually works, that there's a spiritual reality beyond that which we live daily that allows us the privilege of knowing we every day when we wake up are right with God because somebody paid my price. Amen. The wages of sin was death, yeah. is death. And I don't have to die 
anymore because somebody died in my stead who didn't deserve to die. Now, if he deserved to die, then he couldn't die in my stead because he would have to die for all the things he did. But he didn't deserve to die because he did nothing worthy of death. And as a result of doing nothing worthy of death, he could take my death, but death couldn't hold him because he did nothing wrong, which meant that when he died, he couldn't stay dead, which meant he rose. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. You can't plumb the depths of that. It just keeps going deeper and deeper. And the longer I stay with God, the more profound it becomes. You can't get away from the simple. Because it impacts your life the most. God did not want to make this complicated for you. Because the simple is hard for us to understand. We just aren't that smart. We need a lot of help. And so he's trying, Paul is saying, I, I, and this is the greatest theologian who has ever lived. He could philosophize better than any of the people who were in his day. He could break down stuff into ways that were metaphorical that made people go, wow, where'd that come from? Things that we just use normally. He came up with the body of Christ. Peter didn't come up with that. James didn't come up with that. He did. And so we use it as normal thinking every part has a, has a, has a role and function and we need to consider each part as, as being important and none's more important than the other. We need to, but, but he came, this is what it's supposed to look like. The, Harris, the, the Hagar-Sarah thing, where he talked about the two covenants. Uh, the the Ishmael-Isaac thing, where he talked about how important... The stuff he went through in trying to make sure people understood the simple message of the gospel and bringing metaphorical ideas and, and, and parables to it is astounding. Yet he said this, I'm not getting away from the simple. Even though I'm trying to explain all these deep things to you in very metaphorical ways, I want you to know... That at first priority when I came to you, and as now I'm writing you, the thing I want you to hold on to the most is this. That Christ died, he was buried, and he rose. When we came here in 1982, Mark Hawk and Debbie were the senior pastors. I was 21 years old. I was reaching out at Howard University, trying to figure out how to birth something from nothing. I wasn't good at it at all. Not at all. But as we... We, we, we pressed through our mistakes as we went through our inadequacies. God seemed to burst something in spite of us, not because of us. We just happened to be available every day. And he did something special. We were never large. We, we, in, in the 80s, we never got above 180, 200 people on a Sunday morning. Um, but, but we thought we had dreams on the inside. We thought, you know, maybe, maybe God doesn't need a lot to do a lot. We surely are, are, quali are qualified if he doesn't need a lot. Amen. If he doesn't need much, yeah. <laughs> I'm first in line. <laughs> and we just believed. We had faith. But we came, we came with an idea. Pastor Mark was our leader. We're going to preach this gospel. We're going to take this gospel. We may not know all that there is to know about anything, but we do know something. That Christ died, that he, he was buried, and that he rose. And that people have to hear this gospel message. You can make a lot of mistakes. You can have a bunch of inadequacies. You can be less than in just about every category. But if you love God and preach his gospel and love people, you'll be okay. You just keep pressing forward. Because God can fix all your mistakes. 
In fact, he can make your mistakes seem as if they were right in his plan and leverage them for your progress. I don't know how he does that. But he's amazing at doing stuff like that. And, and if he needed somebody more qualified than you, he would have found them. <laughs> he's not looking for qualifications. He's looking for availability. He can fix whatever you don't have. As evidenced by the fact that we just kept our hand at the plow here. We didn't move. We didn't go. We didn't change. We didn't turn. We just kept doing what God wanted us to do as best we knew how. We made mistakes. We disobeyed. We did the wrong thing. We turned left sometimes when we should have turned right. But we kept going in the general direction. We never U-turned. We said, God, please work with us. We may be three degrees off center, but bring us back. And as a result, you showed up. It's just miraculous. I don't know how in the world this happened. I was here for every day of it for the last 38. But it's a miracle to me that you show up because I remember what it was like when people like you were staying away in crowds. People would hear about us and say, that's where I don't want to go. No, it's not because we were bad. We weren't, we weren't antagonistic. We didn't have any, any, any animosity. We, we, we just weren't everything we needed to be. And he did some miraculous things because we decided we won't preach this gospel. There may be a whole lot of issues that need to be addressed from the church perspective, from this place I call a pulpit that is actually a stool. A lot of stuff needs to be addressed. Sociological issues, political stuff. I know you want me to talk about a lot of what Pastor Brett going to say today about that. I know you want me to address it, and I address it, generally speaking, in a way that you don't like because it's all biblically based, if not really strumming the strings of your desire about what you want to hear from here. And I'm going to stay that way. If you don't like it, that's okay. There are a lot of other people that can strum your strings, really. I'm going to do my best to stay centered. Why? Because the first thing I need to concentrate on is how I can get this gospel into the lives of people. Why? Oh, and you, you say, well, that, doesn't that make you irrelevant in so many ways? <laughs> okay, let, let, let's talk about law change for a minute. We, we can change all the laws that need to be changed in order to right wrongs. In fact, so many have. Somebody who happens to be of my physical uh, persuasion and color and complexion, generally speaking, legally, I can go any place I want, and legally, I can get a job. They can't discriminate against me on the basis of my color. I can go in a neighborhood and buy a house, legally. I can go to any school I want, legally. But if the people who are running the thing don't like the color of my skin, they can figure out a way around the legal, ah, oh, they were more qualified candidates. He just wasn't going to fit in our culture. So you can make all the laws you want, but it doesn't change people. And people make culture. And culture is that which even when the laws are against that which they want to do, still prevails in an organization. And how do you change a culture which may seem at times racist in its orientation, but really might just be bigoted? Meaning you can't find a system on paper that actually is against a certain group of people, but you can find people that are against a certain group of people. And racism is systemic bigotry. 
Now, I can't change the language. Everybody uses racist all the time for different stuff. It's not the proper use of the word if it's not systemic. If it's individual, it's bigotry. But I've lost the language barrier, the, the language war in that. I can't change it. I'm just trying to educate you so you know how to bring the, the best possible solution to a situation. Because if the law needs to change, we need to go to the streets and see the law changed. But if the people need to change, we need to preach the gospel. Amen. Are you listening to me? Yeah. Thus, I'm, a, I'm back around to statement one. Priority. Hallelujah. He died. Amen. He was buried and he rose. Glory to God. That's what I'm concentrating on. And the more I can see people change, the more our society will change. Hallelujah. Some of y'all are real mad at me right now. <laughs> <laughs> Paul was centered on that. And there are so many things about which he could have concentrated. Slavery, which was endemic and normative for everybody. For Jew, for Roman, Scythian. How everybody believed in slavery. Everybody. And Paul addressed it. But he didn't make it the central focus of his ministry. Because he realized, even if I change the law, I haven't changed the people. We have preached this gospel, and we believe it is the primary thing that we need to do every day. And not just from here, from you. That when you go out, you need to take this message with you. That you need to, to consider yourself a primary emissary of the kingdom, not of grace covenant but of the kingdom of God, because if you have received the, the, the message of reconciliation, 5, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, we have been given this ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in the world reconciling the world unto himself and, and bringing men who were enemies to himself by reconciling them through Christ. And he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and we are now ambassadors for Christ. Thanking you on behalf of him, be reconciled to God. Meaning this, that if God has given you reconciliation, you have the responsibility to give reconciliation. Freely you have received, freely give. It's not just Brett's responsibility to preach this gospel. It's yours. And if we are going to impact the city, we have to be a people that do it, not just a person, not just a staff. Make this gospel yours so that it can be theirs. He died. He was buried in rose. Oh, nothing is more powerful and nothing is more effective to see world change. Nothing. Secondly, Paul, he realized this. Even though he was talking about how important this message was and making sure people got it, it was unapologetic in his presentation. There was always this, when, when he really got into it after he was talking about the gospel, whether he, he was communicating with Timothy, saying, I'm the foremost of sinners. I shouldn't even be saved. When he's talking about the gospel, he reflects back to himself and realizes, I'm, I'm, not, even, I'm not even qualified to do this thing, even though he's qualified me. But there is nothing on the inside of me that should naturally gravitate toward this. 
I am the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church. I don't know why God sent me to Washington to partner with Mark and Debbie Koch to help pastor and start this church. I don't know why I am now the senior pastor of this church. I can give you the history. I can give you all the, 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 the how-tos and what happened when, but it still makes no sense to me because I, I don't think I'm, I'm naturally qualified, the son of an English teacher and a dentist. And I don't have any preachers in my background. I got a grandma who prayed. My mama's side, oh, she prayed. And I don't, I don't disassociate my being here from her, her cries to God. My mama cried out to God. She didn't really know how. She wasn't much of a disciple when we were growing up. My wife and I, Cynthia, helped lead her to Christ in a deeper way when, when we were adults. But I'm, I'm convinced the combination of her mother and mine tag-teamed on me. I, I couldn't run away from it. But they didn't even know what they were praying. I, I did more than they asked. Once I really got right with God, boy, I got right with God. I mean, I got right with God. I got so right with God, my mother said, you too right. You don't have to go that far, boy. You okay. You just go to church. Just don't do wrong. So, no, mom, I'm called to preach. Really, boy? Nobody wanted me to go the direction that they had prayed me to go in. Nobody. Nobody. My daddy, my mama, nobody. And I wound up here. My point is, I don't know how I got here. I don't know. It makes no sense. And I'm convinced that, that God has asked me and us to do something significant for this city. Not because we are the most qualified, because I know I'm not. My inadequacies are constantly before me. My mistakes are constantly before me. I woke up this morning feeling inadequate. I'm you. Or maybe less than you. Maybe you wake up just energized every day. <laughs> Whoa! This is, this is a day where I can take the world. I can take the world. That doesn't happen to me. I, I usually wake up thinking, again? I got I, I to gotta, I gotta overcome again? I'm, I'm not what I need to be? I, I, I just don't know how in the world I'm going to make it today. It's just... And all my mistakes are just right here. They're right here. They just kind of live here. Yeah. Now, I don't live in condemnation. I don't. I know what Jesus has done for me. But I got to battle these thoughts of what I did wrong way back when and what I've done wrong last week and, and how I wasn't the kind of father I ought to be. And I never abused my kids. I did the best I could. But I made mistakes. I think, oh, I, I probably sent my son to counseling for that right there. I'm sorry. <laughs> <sighs> You know, you just, you just don't, you just don't know. I, my, my oldest, my, my firstborn, you, you, I just look at him and say, sorry. Yeah. You were the guinea pig. I, I don't know. I, we, we're, my lastborn is really happy. Grant, he just walks around every day. Woo! My parents were the greatest. Yes! My firstborn is, oh, God have mercy. My parents. <laughs> I live with that. Nothing I can do. I can't fix what, what happened at 16, what happened at 12. I can't fix what happened at 4. I can't except to say, sorry. My children remind me, though. They, 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 they help. Uh, Grant, they come home, they see Grant when, when he was in high school. 
playing with certain games and watching certain things on TV. <laughs> you never let us do that. <laughs> Guilty. So? <laughs> We're smarter now. What can I say? You wake up. They're right there. They're all right there. And they give me pause to say, you? Really? You? And Paul had his thoughts. He had his thoughts. Now, in 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about an experience. And he doesn't really identify himself. But he's talking about himself. He says, I know man. Whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. But he was taken up to the third heaven. Now, third does not mean there are three levels of the heaven to which we will go when we die. Third heaven is that which is uh, described by the different kinds of realities there are, meaning the atmosphere in which we live and breathe is called the first heaven from Scripture, where the birds fly. The second is called heaven where the stars are beyond us. And the third is the place where God lives. He said, I know a man who was taken up to that one. And he saw stuff he couldn't talk about. Heard stuff he can't say. And um, because of the surpassing greatness of my revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And I begged God three times to take it from me. Now, we, we, can, we can discern a lot from how he says what he says. This is called exegesis. Now, everybody has their process of determining the original meaning of Scripture. I don't care how you do it as long as you get to it. Mine is contextualizing things, looking at Greek and Hebrew, which is normative for everybody else. But then I got to get to know the person who's writing, which is kind of subjective. When I, when I study somebody, I'm trying to live where they live and get in their brain, and figure out how they're making decisions. And so I'm sitting there looking at Paul, having read all of his letters multiple times, and thinking, I think I know him a little bit. I can't say that I know exactly what the thorn in the flesh is, but I can say probably what it's not, which some commentators have said it is, meaning that Paul, when he writes to the letter at, at the church of Galatia, says, see what large letters I am writing you to, writing, uh, write, see with which, <laughs> see with, with which large letters I am writing to you. And he's talking about not length, he's talking about big, big A's, big B's, big alphas, big zetas. And so he had some maybe physical deformity from his eyes. And, but the problem is, and so do I. I mean, I, I can't see you. I have no idea who you are, whether you're black or white. None, none. It happens when people get old, and Paul was old. Yeah. Some people believe that it happened as a result of when the scales appeared on his eyes from seeing Christ on the road to Damascus, and something happened to him. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It doesn't seem that way because most of Paul's um, comments regarding his physical body and the difficulty through which he went were those which... We're, we're almost badges of courage. And in, in, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about day and a night out of the sea. 
five times, 39 lashes from the Romans, three times beaten with rods. He says, these are my bragging points to talk about what I will boast in as opposed to the apostles that call themselves super who boast in their ability to preach, who boast in their ability to build. I boast in my weakness. And so the things that were weak in Paul's flesh, he would always brag about and say, I'm happy to carry this. These are badges of courage that I suffer for my Lord, and he's considered me worthy to do so. So his physical ailments really, I don't think, were a part of him describing the difficulty through which he's been and complaining because he never complained. So why in the world would he talk to God about, about taking something away three times? And three times is, is significant, not in terms of numerology, just in terms of how I know Paul might have talked to God. Now, this is a man who is most close on the planet to the Lord. I don't think anybody surpassed him in his ability to communicate with God. Some may have been equal, Peter, James, the apostles. Nobody, nobody closer. And that he says, three times I asked the Lord, gives you some picture as to the way he normally would receive information from God. Meaning, how many times do you ask for what you want? Right, you don't know. It's so many times you don't count because you're, it's, it's like you're, you're, it's like you're, you're play, playing darts blindfolded, okay? And you hope it hits. You hope the prayer really, really hits the mark, but you don't know. So you just keep asking. And you hope that somehow whatever you are asking for happens to be according to his will. But 99% of the time it's not. And so you, you, you just, you don't take no for an answer because you want it so bad. The fact that Paul said three times says this, this is unusual for me. When I talk to God, I get an answer because I always pray according to his will. He says yes to me. I don't get a no. <laughs> this was a different dude. Which means this thing here that he actually got to know and then asked again had to be super difficult because he would have been, he would have been satisfied with a no if he was, was able to, to contextualize it within something of his body because that's what he was doing, suffering for Christ. That was his normative. But this no was different. And so he went back to God and said, can I talk to you about this one more time? No. I'm not giving it to you. And then three times? This really had to deal with Paul's soul because he never complained about his physical body. Please, God, take this away. God said, no. My strength is perfected in weakness and my grace is sufficient for you. What would have made Paul so vexed in his soul that he had to ask three times to get a clear explanation as to why God wouldn't say yes? All this stuff. I think it's found in this passage. I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church. I don't know. There's no proof of what I'm saying, but I know Paul. 
what do you do when now you're right with Jesus and you're out there building the church and what's in the back of your brain is that there was a seven-year-old girl that you intentionally stoned or had stoned because she said she loved Jesus and you saw the parents just weeping and then you separated mom from dad and put them in prison you confiscated their home and they died by being thrown to the lions what do you do? I'm being metaphorical because the lions didn't come until later in the church but the persecution of the local church which was in local in Jerusalem and in the re- neighboring regions was, was, was stewarded by Saul who became Paul. God, I can't take this. I know you've forgiven me. But please deal with this because I wake up every morning hearing that girl cry. Every morning I hear her cry. And I, I shouldn't even do what I'm doing. I should be the one who's dying. And maybe that's part of the reason he went into danger intentionally. Just trying to go to heaven. <laughs> you know, you can't knock yourself off. That's illegal. <laughs> that's just flat wrong. Are you, it, listen to me. That's just flat wrong. But maybe, <laughs> maybe, if, I, maybe if I go to Lystra, Maybe if I go to Lister, they'll stone me and I can go on to be the glory and this will be over. They did it. They stoned him in Lystra. Now, do you know anybody? Because in 2 Corinthians 11, he says this. I was five times with the Roman lashes of 39, 40 minus 1, 39. Five times. Three times beaten with rods. I was stoned. Do you know anybody who's been in an electric chair? And says, I died in an electric chair. Nobody can testify about it. They're dead. My point is, when people execute folks, they usually succeed. I can't even die. (laughs) I can't even die. They killed me, and I came back. (laughs) And it's it's in the Bible. The disciples picked him up, took him outside the city, and were going to bury him. So the disciples thought he was dead because he was dead. The Bible says supposing he was dead. And when he got outside the city, it was one of these. That was rough. Oh, Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And then the strange thing it says, the very next verse, and Paul went back into the city. I don't know. He's over here with these, I think, trying to figure out why am I qualified? I need the most help out of anybody. I I don't know how to fix all this in my past except to continually come before my God and say, help. Ah, for Paul, my strength is perfected in that right. It's not in your competency. It's not in your great theology. It's not in your ability to architect the fabulous churches that you do. It's because you continually come before me asking me to help you with this. 
realizing what you are not regularly. And because of that, I can be all I need to be on the inside of you. I would love it if my past would go away. I would love it. But it makes me do every day what I need to do, if not every hour. God, I need you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. Because I surely am not qualified in and of myself to do this. And that's what keeps your pastor right with God every day. And whatever strength I can exert, it's because I know how weak I am. He was redeemed. He was whole. Not because he was, but because God made him so. And as a result, he said this. All these apostles are really great. They're fabulous. And I'm the one who's least to be called one. But because I know what I'm not, I've chosen to work harder than them all. I don't know what that means because it's Paul's own testimony about how hard he works compared to everybody else. I don't know what Peter thought when he read this. True, but really? Yeah, okay. I don't know what it means to elevate your duties above mine and how you compare. And I don't know that Paul was trying to diminish the role of the other apostles. In fact, I don't think he was at all. I think what he was trying to say is this, because I know what I was, every day I get up trying to figure out how in the world can I pay God back. We can't, but we ought to try. You can't work for heaven, impossible, it's a gift. But now that you got the gift, what are you going to do? Now that you've been forgiven, what are you going to do? What is the proper response for any human who has received a gift they do not deserve? It's going to take them out of the place whereby they, they, they had to suffer the consequences for their own misdeeds. What should that person do? What does the person do who is on their way to the gallows and all of a sudden they get a, a, a manumission from the supreme leader, whoever that is, pardoning, pardoning them for all their sins, all their crimes? And they get to walk free. How should he respond to the person that gave him that gift? I'm yours. My life is yours. I'm not going to go live it the way I want to now. I'm surely not going to do what I did that got me in the position where I needed pardoning. I want you to know, leader, ruler, what you want me to do, I'll do. I am yours. Paul's version of working harder said this. I'm... To the degree that I destroyed, I'm going to give my effort to build. Peter, James, John, none of them did any of the stuff I did. And so I get their, their very gradual and successive progress toward spiritual maturity. I get it. And I'm not mad about that. I'm glad they didn't do what I did. But I know what I did. And to the degree I tried to destroy, I'm going to give that same zeal to build. I'm convinced that the only difference between Paul's understanding of his life and our understanding of our, our stewardship and responsibility is revelation. Amen. You don't have to have gone and done the unthinkable to now do the extraordinary, 
to feel the responsibility every day to go out and do great because you've already done what Adam and Eve did. We like to categorize our sins in such a way that the worst is, is really, really vile. And then there are lesser sins that God kind of winks at and says, eh, that's not too bad. I'll let you go. All of it's evil. Every bit of it is evil. And nobody needs more forgiveness than anybody else. Are you listening to me? Therefore, if we all need the same level of forgiveness, we should all give the same level of effort in thanksgiving to God for how he has done what he's done. Work hard every day. Why? He said, well, whether I preach or they, you believed. His, his payback was, I'm going to get this gospel, this basic message of he died, he was buried, he, was ro- he rose to the people that need to know. Please, if you want to pay back God for what he's done, take that to your friends. Take that to your workplace. Take that to your neighborhood. Uh, uh, addendum. Take that to your workplace rightly. Don't blame me when you get fired for doing stupid. <laughs> Come in there wagging your Bible in the air at 8 a.m. We gonna do Bible study today. I'd fire you too. <laughs> You're paid to do a job. Do your job. God will give you the opportunities. He'll provide the moments. You do not need to take your employer's money and use it for gospel presentation when they're paying you to do so. Work with integrity. Work with integrity. There are moments, though, where the Lord will open up something and you step through those things. This is who we are. This is why we do what we do. Why we preach the gospel. Why we are so bold to believe that we can really impact Washington, D.C. Not because we're the most qualified. Probably he called us to do it because everybody else said no. He asked a lot of people and they just said, uh uh-uh. They said, well, we'll we'll get Mark and Brett and Debbie. (laughs) They're available. Are they qualified? Mm. But they're available. And I can fix the qualification thing. He'll do the same for you. If you just sign up, he'll do something extraordinary beyond your belief. We're going to do something for Washington, D.C. that's going to help change the world. I don't know how. I don't know what. I have a feeling, and you're going to hear more about it in the months to come, but we're going to do something that's going to be extraordinary. We need to help with the rest of the body of Christ. It's not just us, but we're going to do our part. Not because we're qualified, but because those people out there who have yet to receive the fact that he died, he was buried, and he rose, need it. And somebody's got to give it to them.